Time is a tricky concept. Humans have been trying to make sense of the passage of time for millennia and have developed an impressive array of calendars to help us know when exactly we are, or where we think we are. However, not every culture uses the same calendar. Historians have to keep all these different calendrical systems in mind when they're calculating when things happened or may have happened. But even today, there are some who think we have it all wrong. And some of them think that there have been some pretty funny doings afoot to accidentally or maybe purposefully add or subtract years from history for various nefarious plots. So what year is it? For those of us using the Gregorian calendar, it's 2020 CE. If you're a Muslim, it's 1442. It's 5781 in the Hebrew calendar. But for followers of the phantom time hypothesis, it's really only the year 1723. In Emanuel Velikovsky's revised chronology, it's 2520 or so. Welcome to the weird and ever-changing world of pseudo-history and historical revisionism, where people come up with theories to prove everyone else is wrong, but they, the clever buggers, have it all figured out. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Time for Timer, Pseudo-Histories and Historical Revision. The Missing Day. For quite some time now, there's been a rumor circulating that NASA actually proved an event that's in the Bible, which is that God made the sun stand still for a day. This notion hit the internet around 1999 and is usually told as a story that came from a guy named Harold Hill, president of the Curtis Engine Company in Baltimore and a consultant for the space program. The story usually goes something like this. Scientists were using computers to predict where the sun, the moon, and the planets in the solar system would be a hundred years from now and also a thousand years from now. This would help with things like planetary exploration, placing satellites, so on and so forth. The computers started calculating from a long time ago with the idea that if they got that data, they could then extrapolate forward. But it came back with an error. The computer said there was a full day missing in the past. No one could figure it out until a Christian who was on the scientific team mentioned, hey, you know, there's a story in the Bible in the book of Joshua about the sun standing still. In that story, Joshua was leading an army of Israelites 
who just arrived in the region, against five kings who were attacking the city of Gibeon, which is near Jericho. Joshua asked God to make the sun stand still over the city. God liked Joshua, so he did. The sun did stop moving for an entire day, and Joshua and the Israelites totally won, mainly because God was on their side. God incidentally also threw giant hailstones at the enemy and ended up killing more people than Joshua's soldiers actually did. Well, the scientists were amazed by this Christian colleague's tale, but they were still skeptical. They looked at the data logs and they found the missing time happened somewhere right around when this big battle probably would have in fact taken place if it took place. But it wasn't a whole day, it was only 23 hours and 20 minutes, just shy. The Christian guy pointed out that some versions of the Bible say, quote, about a day and not exactly a day. But many of them were still pretty skeptical. Then one of them said, hey, why not? Let's go get a Bible and take a look at it. And he read a passage in two kings in which the king Hezekiah was dying. And then the prophet Isaiah showed up and told him God would heal him. Hezekiah asked for proof, which is rather cheeky when you think about it. So Isaiah said the Lord would give him a sign. Did he want the shadow to move ahead 10 steps or back 10 steps? the shadow being the sun in the sky and a step being a degree along the arc that it travels throughout the sky during the day. Hezekiah said backwards would be harder and that would constitute real proof. And then it happened. So it takes the sun about 40 minutes to move 10 degrees across the sky. So if you combine these two biblical stories, hey, that adds up to exactly 24 hours. Amazing. Amazing! And they were totally convinced, and then NASA hushed it all up. Harold Hill was a real person. He really was an engineer for NASA, and he really did go on later to become the president of the Curtis Engine Company. And he claimed that this was a true story, and he knew for a fact that it was true. However, Hill's story is almost exactly the same as one told back in 1936, by a Presbyterian minister called Harry Rimmer in his book, The Harmony of Science and Scripture. Now keep in mind, in 1936, NASA didn't exist. Computers didn't really exist. So obviously there are a couple of differences between the two tales. When the similarities were pointed out to Mr. Hill, he conveniently misplaced the corroborating documentation that he said he had, and then he said he couldn't remember when exactly this amazing event happened at NASA, and he also couldn't remember the names of any of the people who had been present. When NASA is asked, they say, uh, well, none of this is true, it's all hogwash. First off, they don't even figure out where planetary bodies will be in the future by going centuries into the past first. That's just not how it's done. And even if they did, they would not have somehow found a missing 24-hour period because how could they? But this didn't stop the story being circulated in the early days of the internet to try and prove that scientists have accidentally confirmed the historical veracity of the Bible and then covered it up. For the record, they haven't. Time, Time for, a, for change. a change. So way back when, the Roman Empire used the Roman calendar. The Roman calendar was 10 months long, covering 355 days, and then sometimes an extra month that was sometimes 27 days and sometimes 28 days was inserted between January and February. Sometimes, not every time. 
in years when this was inserted, the calendar year was 377 or 378 days long. I mean, this is a mess. Basically, it was said that the average Roman citizen could not with any confidence tell you exactly what day of the year it was. The month we call March today, which is the month of Mars, started the calendar year and that was the first month. The January and February, and this sort of sometimes appearing, sometimes not appearing extra month, happened out of time and were not considered part of the 10-month cycle. Julius Caesar said this is a mess. So he said, let's combine some of the elements of this, some of the elements of the Egyptian calendar, because he'd been hanging out with Cleopatra, so he became familiar with that, and some of the calendar ideas being used by the Greeks. And he combined them all together into a new calendar called the Julian calendar, named after him, which went into effect on January 1st, 45 BCE. This calendar was tied to the sun, which moves in a pretty regular fashion across the sky throughout the year, and so therefore they didn't have to keep making all of these ridiculous adjustments. After Caesar was killed on the steps of the Senate, Mark Antony had Julius Caesar's birth month renamed after him. Caesar had been born in what we now in English call July, which had been the fifth month, and then Caesar's successor and adopted grandnephew Augustus got his birth month, named after him, August, and this is why September, September is the seventh month, October is the eighth month, and so on and so forth. So, under this system, March was the first, December was the tenth, and it all actually made sense because January and February were out of time. They were not technically part of the calendar system. However, when Augustus defeated Mark Antony and ended up becoming the second emperor of Rome, he discovered that priests had been adding a leap day every three years instead of every four years, which is what they were supposed to do in order to make the new Julian calendar work. So things were really out of whack. So he suspended all leap days for a number of years until everything could sync up again. Again, this is also a bit of a mess. Now, the Roman Empire was pretty far-flung, and many of the lands under Roman rule used different calendars. And when the empire said, you're going to start using this Julian system, some of them got pretty creative in the ways that they adapted it to their local time-telling. However, eventually, in some form or another, it became the standard through all Roman lands and even much beyond throughout all of Europe. So even back then, it was pretty much well known by the smart set that a year is actually 365 and one quarter days long. So they knew they needed to have this extra day stuck in every four years in order to compensate. However, we now know that a year is actually 365.24219 days long, to be precise. So therefore, this new system with this leap day business isn't an exact match. And so every 128 years, the Julian calendar gained a day because of this tiny discrepancy, which wasn't a big deal at first, but over the centuries, it really did start to become a problem. By the time we get to the late 16th century, we've got a 10-day discrepancy between the world and the calendar. So, in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII had his people come up with a revised calendar that would correct for this drift, and he issued a papal bull making it the official calendar for the entire Christian world. In order to correct things, they had to make a quick sort of jump. So, October 4th, 1582, was followed by October 15th, and that way they got rid of the 10 days that were a mistake, and everything was great. 
However, not everybody throughout the Christian world jumped on this bandwagon immediately. In France, they didn't adopt it until December. So December 9th was followed by December 20th. Different parts of Holland took it on at different times, ranging from December 25th until January 12th, 1583, the following year. Catholic cantons in Switzerland didn't adopt it until January 1684, which by then there'd been even more drift. The whole thing was a mess, and it took sometimes two or even 300 years for places to adopt the new Gregorian calendar. For example, the Danes and Norwegians waited until February 18, 1700 to make the change, and so February 18th was followed by March 1st. Sweden decided that making this one 10 or since they'd waited so long, it was now 11-day jump, was just too crazy. So starting in the year 1700, they eliminated leap days for 11 leap years, ending this process in 1753. While they were trying to work all this out, they even, because they made some mistakes, they even had a February 30th a couple of times. Some places like Latvia and Lithuania and even Nova Scotia in Canada actually went back to the Julian calendar for a while. And Finland used both the Julian and Gregorian calendars until they got their independence from Russia in 1917. Great Britain and its territories and colonies adopted the new calendar in 1752, and by then they also needed to eliminate 11, not 10 days. So September 2nd, 1752 was followed by September 14th. A satirical journal wrote a joke article about a painting by William Hogarth, which was misunderstood, and a rumor started flying around that people rioted during this change in Great Britain, demanding their 11 days back. However, this almost certainly did not, in fact, actually happen. One of the most recent ones to adopt it was Greece, who waited until 1923, Turkey until 1926, and Saudi Arabia, which was using the Islamic calendar, decided to adopt the Gregorian calendar as recently as 2016. Now, the Gregorian calendar is still not perfect. It's still off by 27 seconds a year, which equals one day every 3,236 years. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. However, there are three more accurate calendars in existence that we could be using instead. The Mayan calendar ends up only being one day off every 6,500 years. The 1923 revised Julian calendar, which was proposed by a Serbian scientist named Milutin Milankovic, only adds an extra day every 31,250 years. And the most accurate calendar ever devised by man is the Iranian solar Hedri calendar, invented in the second millennium BCE, way before any of this. And it is off by only one second every year, which equals an extra day every 110,000 years. But like it or not, the Gregorian calendar is the one that we use in most of the world today. The Phantom, Phantom Time, Time Hypothesis, hypothesis. In 1991, Bavarian alt-history guy Herbert Illig proposed the phantom time hypothesis. This says that the Anno Domini dating system, which we've now modernized into CE, was actually a conspiracy created by Holy Roman Emperor Otto III, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII, and Pope Sylvester II, so that they could rewrite history and make sure that the seemingly important year of 1000 AD happened while they were in power. The whole idea here would be that 
people would think that Otto's claim to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire was totally legit and totally ordained by God because he starts his reign in the year 1000, and that seems important. Basically, this triple threat cabal did all this by creating fake documents and physical forgeries and then adding a fake 297 years to what we now call the early Middle Ages. So basically, the entire period that's known as the Carolingian period when Charlemagne was doing his thing was totally made up. Charlemagne was also made up. Everything that we think now happened between the years 614 and 911 AD or CE are wholly, totally manufactured. What is Illig's proof? Well, first he says there's not much archaeological evidence from these years and the documentary evidence is mainly written accounts by historians at the time and those could easily have been forged later. That there is clearly Romanesque architecture in Europe in the 10th century, so that the Roman Empire probably ended much closer to the year 1000 AD, and not when we thought it did. And the mismatch between the Julian calendar, which was being used at the time, and the Gregorian calendar, which started being used in 1582, should have been 13 days, but people working for Pope Gregory calculated the two systems were off by only 11 days. So basically, the two calendars were off by a day per century, and Illig said, aha, three days difference means three centuries. So therefore, 300 years didn't happen at all, which means that this is not the year 2020, but it is the year 1723. Did you follow that? Because I didn't. Of course, most historians and medievalists say this is just crazy talk. However, a few went along with it, seeing some kind of logic in his idea. Specifically, Dr. Hans Ulrich Nemitz, who became something of a champion of the phantom time hypothesis in his 1995 essay, Did the Early Middle Ages Really Exist? So if this theory is true, what we now call the year 614 would have been followed by what we now call the year 912, which means the Muslims did not invade Hispania in 711, Constantinople was not besieged in 717, Charlemagne never created the seeds of the Holy Roman Empire but was a mythical character like King Arthur, Vikings started their invasions at different times, and the Reconquista in Spain happened much earlier, though, of course, how there could be a Reconquista in Spain to drive out the Muslims if the Muslims never actually invaded Spain, well, that's a question, but anyway. Illig didn't get this idea 100% from scratch. He had been part of a group that studied the works of an earlier historical revisionist named Emmanuel Velikovsky. The Revised Chronology Velikovsky was a Russian-Israeli-American scholar, quote-unquote, who published a book completely revising ancient history in 1952. The book was called Ages in Chaos. The thrust of it is that there is a 500-year discrepancy in the histories of ancient Egypt and ancient Israel. Basically, he was trying to match up modern-at-that-time work by Egyptologists with passages from the Old Testament. So, for example, he puts the Exodus, when Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, which was somewhere between 2050 and 1710 BCE, and not during the New Kingdom, which is 1570 to 1544 BCE. So, he revises things backwards instead of forwards. So he goes backwards. Illig took those ideas and moved everything forward. Velikovsky's revisions go all the way up to the time of Alexander the Great. In his book, Ages of Chaos, Velikovsky introduces the idea of what he calls ghost doubles or alter egos. 
people from history that come from two different sources, and we modern people thought were two different people living at two different times, but actually, they're really the same person, and we just got it all wrong. And it makes sense if you add in these extra years. Now, this book ended up becoming quite popular, and his career as one of the modern fathers of historical revisionism was off and running. Later, he got into Greek stories as well, saying that the father of Oedipus and the founder of Thebes, Laos, was actually the Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III. Oedipus was actually Akhenaten, and Oedipus's son was actually King Tutankhamun. He was really focused on Egypt. And so it goes. While most historians think this is pretty silly season stuff, a few of them have taken the ball and run with it, sometimes adjusting Velikovsky's chronologies further, even by as much as not 500 years, but 1,500 years. A number of diehard enthusiasts still maintain today that Velikovsky was on to something here. In fact, they're often very vocal and very disruptive about it. They try to get their papers published in peer-reviewed journals, but usually those journals just reject them outright. And even when they don't, when they do publish, mainstream historians jump all over the revisionist work, and yes, academics can sometimes be very, very mean, and the arguments get very, very ugly and personal. Detractors were especially vociferous in their condemnation of Velikovsky's ideas, and in 1967, a book was published called The Velikovsky Affair, Scientism versus Science, which was a collection of essays that looked at how people in a particular field are not super keen on people from outside their field weighing in on it. Velikovsky, of course, felt slighted all round because he thought he was this super genius who'd figured it all out. In fact, he called himself a, quote, suppressed genius, and he was something of a martyr for inquiry. Arguments among historians got so heated that in 1974, the American Association for the Advancement of Science decided to have a bait between Carl Sagan and Velikovsky. The interesting thing is that after the debate, Sagan said that even if only 20% of what Velikovsky thought was true had any kind of merit, it was still interesting and still worth investigating further. Basically, while he's certainly wrong on a whole bunch of things, he might be right or half right on a couple of things, and we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Big boom! Big Big changes. changes! Velikovsky was also very much on board with something known as catastrophism. This is the idea that the earth has been changed, not gradually over time, which is the generally the mainstream scientific view, but by sudden, unexpected, short-term events. Sort of a geological and historical version of punctuated equilibrium and mutations being the cause of evolution. Things like the Great Flood in the Bible could then be used to explain mass extinction events in the past and certain geological features. These arguments often are taken up by religious people who are operating within a scientific context and often leads them to conclude that the Earth is actually much, much younger than traditional science says it is. Velikovsky, for example, maintained that Venus was a comet that had been ejected by Jupiter, bounced around the inner solar system for a while, and then got caught into the sun's orbit where it is today. He says that while it was still a comet, it passed by Earth 3,500 years ago, twice in a 52-year period, and then again in 787 BCE, and this is where the biblical stories of the plagues of Egypt and the sun standing still and all that stuff comes from. It's also what caused Atlantis to sink beneath the waves. 
Now, the idea of comets somehow influencing events here on Earth is not that out there. The Alvarez impact event hypothesis about what happened to the dinosaurs certainly says that an impact of some sort or another caused that mass extinction event. So the idea that there might be a little kernel of fact in old myths isn't really that crazy an idea. I mean, after all, almost every culture has a flood story, for example. So maybe there was a big flood. Of course, creationists and other people who have a predetermined agenda often use these same arguments to try and push their ideas into the mainstream. Again, this idea that, yes, yes, it's in the Bible, but look, here's some scientific evidence to back it up. And keep in mind, this isn't just academics arguing around. Creationists in America, for example, want their theory taught in schools alongside evolution or sometimes instead of evolution. So it's not just people in ivory towers throwing well-worded barbs and $10 insults at one another. The New, the new chronology. chronology Anatoly Timofeevich Formenko is a top Russian mathematician and topologist. Topology is the study of properties of geometric objects under continuous deformations. He is also the creator of the pseudo-historical conspiracy theory known as the New Chronology. This theory says that the civilizations that we today call ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, and the Roman Empire, they all happened during the Middle Ages. The conspiracy part is that all of history before the year 1600 CE has been intentionally falsified by the Vatican, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Romanov family of Russia. All history before 1600. Why? This has been to cover up the true history. All of these different groups that historians talk about, the Scythians, the Huns, the Goths, the Bulgars, the Cossacks, the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, they're not actually separate groups separated in time by centuries. They're actually different names for one huge group that makes up a vast world-spanning Slav-Turkic empire he calls the Russian Horde. In Formenko's new chronology, Jesus was born in the Crimea in the year 1152. Jesus died of crucifixion on Joshua's Hill in Istanbul in 1185. And the eclipse that occurred when he died happened on May 1st that year. So this character of Jesus that's written about in the Bible is totally fake, but it's based on a combination of real people. The Byzantine emperor Andronikos I Komnenos, the Greek gods Dionysus and Bacchus, the Greek mathematician Euclid, Pope Gregory VII, St. Basil of Caesarea, and the Mongol emperor Zhong. The events from these people's lives were all combined together to create this Jesus character in the Bible. He also later suggested that Pope Gregory VII based many of the fake Jesus stories on his own life. Formenko also mixes up the stories of Jerusalem, Troy, and Rome, saying that they're actually all about Yoros Castle in Istanbul. He also says there are three Romes, in fact. The first Rome is in Egypt, where Alexandria is now. The second one is Constantinople, and the third one is the city of Moscow, which was the capital for the huge but secret Russian horde, which this whole thing has been concocted to hide from history. So whenever you read about Rome in historical records or in religious texts, that name is actually code for one of these three places. He also says the Temple of Solomon you read about in the Bible was actually the Hagia Sophia. Solomon was really the Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. 
The Old Testament was written after the New Testament, and Judaism came from Christianity, not the other way around. His proof, quote-unquote, is a lengthy list of items that are pretty esoteric to non-historians. But included in there, you've got a couple of manuscripts that supposedly were written between 1583 and 1632 with tons and tons of numerical codes and Kabbalistic references that allow one to decode the truth. He also uses Sumerian and Babylonian horoscope tablets, Chinese tables for eclipses, horoscopes from Egypt supposedly dated between... 1000 and 1700 CE, a horoscope for October 1st, 1486, hidden inside of the book of Revelations, if you just read it carefully enough, and on and on and on the list goes. It's really detailed and very confusing. It should come as no surprise that Fromenko's ideas are even less well-received than Velikovsky's. However, international chess superstar Gary Kasparov is a believer, and he has done a lot to spread what he thinks is the truth. After all, he is Russian. The idea that the Russians somehow are actually the single most important and influential people in all of Western history would appeal to him. Some commentators think that, in fact, if Kasparov had not been so vocal in his praise of Formenko's new chronology, it would probably have died the quiet death it deserved and be just a seldom-referenced footnote in the history of history. But again, let's not forget the conspiracy portion of all this. It's quite ingenious. So Fermenko says, any documents that you produce to refute his claims are dismissed out of hand if they come from before 1600, because all of those documents are forgeries. It's all a plot to minimize the Russian horde's astonishing achievements and sideline the greatest power the world has ever known. As best as I can piece together from reading some of the dense ramblings of the proponents of the new chronology, the Russian horde was going along basically creating the modern age of modern civilization, the greatest historical force ever known, when Pope Clement VII and Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, King of Bohemia, who had moved the seat of the Holy Roman Empire to Prague, were tired of all the glory going to this damned Russian horde. So then either they were approached by or they approached an ambitious Russian noble family, we now know today as the Romanovs, who had married a daughter to Ivan the Terrible back in the 16th century. Pope Gregory in Rome and Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf in Prague wanted more power and glory as well, so they all got together and quite literally rewrote history, simply excising all references to the Russian horde from all the documents, creating new fictional historical characters and moving events from where and when they really happened to other times and places. One of the reasons they could get away with this is Russia was going through a chaotic time known as the Time of Troubles. But finally, a Romanov came back on the throne in 1613. By then, the rewrite was well underway, and Michael I, the new Tsar of Russia, and the first Romanov on the throne, played along because, well, it was in his personal benefit to do so. After all, the great Russian horde wasn't his family, and the Romanovs would then remain pretty much in charge of Russia until 1917, and that ill-fated appointment with revolutionaries in a basement. Many have compared the scope and imaginative detail of the new chronology to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, with one writer saying that the new chronology is one of the greatest fantasy stories ever devised. And, thanks to chess master Garry Kasparov, it has plenty of fans. In Russia, Formenko's books have sold more than a million copies. There are hundreds of fan 
websites and literally hundreds of amateur historians out there trying to dig up more proof to support the new chronology. You should note that a lot of the people who are doing this are Russian imperialists who believe that Russia should have an emperor again. Russians Russians aplenty. Other Russian thinkers have found what they thought were discrepancies in the historical record as well. This is like a hobby for the Russians, I guess. I don't know, maybe it's because the winters are just so long and brutal, the mind wanders, that mixed with all the vodka? I don't know. Formenko certainly based some of his ideas on some earlier work by a guy named Nikolai Alexandrovich Morozov, an astronomer and revolutionary who spent 23 years in prison between 1882 and 1905 for advocating terrorism as a means to social change, and who later met and followed Karl Marx before returning to science. Morozov thought that three ancient dynasties seemed eerily similar, leading him to surmise that they were actually the same people and they'd been accidentally tripled by historians. Morozov also thought that much of what we think of as the accepted historical record pre-first century BCE had been falsified, though he did not claim to know why. The 1421 theory. The academic world is filled with alternative ideas on how things went down. Some of it's legitimate questioning of what starts to look like dogma in academic circles, which is very much something in science's wheelhouse. Other things come near or even cross over the line into full-blown sensationalism and pseudoscience. A recent example is the 1421 theory, which says a Chinese fleet under the command of the eunuch Admiral Zheng He reached North America in 1421, a full 71 years before Columbus mistook those lands for India. It goes on to say that many of the Native American tribes encountered by the Europeans were in fact descendants of the Chinese. This 1421 theory was popularized in a book published in 2002 called 1421, the year the Chinese discovered the world by a man named Gavin Menzies. Gavin's been dining out on this for quite a while now, and he's written further books on the subject, saying that in 1434 the Chinese arrived in Europe, and also a book about Atlantis. The 1421 hypothesis, if we can call it a hypothesis, has been roundly debunked by literally hundreds of researchers and historians. The science is shoddy, there are huge leaps of logic made, and basically... Gavin's not really an academic or a science guy. He's a retired submarine lieutenant commander who was raised in China and likes it. Apparently, he'd originally decided to write a book about everything that happened in the whole world in the year 1421. But the manuscript was 1,500 pages long and nobody would publish it. So one publisher said, hey, why don't you pull out the Chinese Discover America part, expand that, and we'll publish that. But the problem, of course, is that Gavin's not a very good writer, and so he had some help with the prose, like a lot of help. Over 130 people ended up working on this book, rewriting this bit and that bit, though the bulk of the work was done by a professional ghostwriter named Neil Hansen. The way all these little writing elves fact-checked was to ask Gavin if something was true or not. If he said it was, then they included it. They did not have any independent experts, they just asked him. He who controls the past past controls controls the future. future. Menzies may have been simply mistaken or not trained in proper historical analysis, or maybe he was just an attention hound, or maybe he's a little cuckoo. Who knows? And by the way, these are not the only revised timelines out there. 17th century French scholar Jean Hadun thought that all the classics of ancient literature except for Homer, Cicero, Herodotus, 
and a few other single works were all faked in the 13th century by bored monks. He also thought the books of the New Testament were written originally in Latin, not Hebrew and Aramaic, and he thought that Dante's Inferno was a fake written much, much later. He was crazy. Plenty of people have come up with alternate views of history that push certain ideas of race. These are written by racists. This happens a lot in the United States. In fact, modern Americans seem particularly prone to historical revisionist thinking. B.J. Burkett, in his book Stolen Valor, claims that many of the, quote, truths that we, quote, know about the Vietnam War are actually liberal, liberal lies. lies. Other writers claim that Hitler and fascism are left-wing ideologies. They aren't. Others say Martin Luther King Jr. was really a conservative and that conservatives invented the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Still others say that South Korea actually started the Korean War and that Barack Obama caused the Great Recession of 2008, even though he wasn't elected until November that year, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. We're not even going to get into the whole Holocaust denial thing here. That's another episode, and we've gone on long enough. George Orwell said in his book 1984, he who controls the past controls the future. That would certainly seem to be the motivation for at least some of these folks. Others are deluded or misguided or are trying to carve out an academic name for themselves, and a few are just genuinely mentally unhinged. Whatever the motivations, you can pretty much guarantee that as the idea that we're now living in a, quote, post-truth world continues to spread, we will see more and more revisions to what is known. Some of it will be legitimate reassessments based on new evidence, which will be disbelieved by people who have an agenda to do so. And some of it, like most of what we talked about in this episode, will be stone-cold poppycock. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.